0: Hello, hello, and welcome to The Last Dance After Show. I'm Sam Fragoso, joining me as he does each week is the inimitable, unbeatable, unstoppable David Villar. How are we doing?
1: Sam, I'm just Eurostepping stepping for the game of life while drawing contact for the and one.
0: God, you absolutely planned and wrote that out.
1: That is straight off the dome. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> just improv master.
0: Uh, didn't you improv with Carl Tart one? I did.
1: I did. And I got to play Charles Barkley in the scene, which, um, who knew that that would be, you know, like a glimmer in the eye of, of this podcast, so to speak.
0: Go ahead. Do the impression.
1: Man, that's terrible. Man, let me tell you what, I'll tell you that's terrible. Going out there like a bunch of knuckleheads. (laughs) Close your eyes and it's as if Charles Barkley is in studio with us right
2: now.
0: David, I wish you did those impressions for our two guests this week. Up first, we're talking to director Jason Hare. He made this film we've been talking about for the last few weeks. He also directed Andre the Giant, the documentary on HBO. He's made a few 30 for 30s. Uh, My favorite is the one, of course, on the 85 Bears. Um, And then after Jason, we're going to call up Dr. Boyd. Uh, You've probably seen him throughout this documentary. He's kind of One of my favorite talking heads in this piece.
1: He's absolutely incredible. He's appeared in, I believe, as you said, in a multitude of documentaries about sports and culture. He has written The Notorious PhD's Guide to the Superfly 70s and Young, Black, Rich and Famous, uh, The New HNIC and Am I Black Enough for You? And overall, he is just a really interesting dude who knows a lot about hoops.
0: We're thankful to have both of them on, and uh, we thank you for listening to the show week after week. We'll have a new one for you on Thursday with directors Steve James and Bill and Turner Ross. Until then, if you have not checked out our back catalog, uh, last week we had on Culture Critic at the New York Times, Wesley Morris. Before that, we've had on everyone from Bob Ryan to Carl Tart, Daniel Van Kirk, uh, boy, who else we got? Brian Moses, Davey Rothbart. Am I leaving someone out? Sam Smith. Right, Sam Smith. How did I forget him? Oh, Adam McKay. Adam McKay. He's a talented Indeed. one. You can find all those on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. Want to we call up Jason?
1: Sounds like a splendid idea. Let's do it.
3: What's up, guys?
0: Jason, let's get right into it. This stock was supposed to come out in the summer. Uh, You then had to fast track the post-production process. I'm curious, what has it been like finishing the film in these final weeks as people start watching the movie?
3: Technologically, it's been really challenging because we went from a multi-million dollar facility to our home computers, essentially. Um, So luckily, we have... Uh, a team of world class editors who already had world class edit setups in their apartments in new york so uh, the challenge though is instead of walking down the hall and and tossing around ideas and approving cuts and and listening to different cuts of music and different uh, different pictures over over those cuts of music and making instantaneous decisions now it's them making a cut, outputting it, uploading it, me taking it, downloading it, uploading it to my device, it's just a, a much more painstaking process. But um, everyone has really buckled down and, and it's a credit to everyone on the team that they have created this workflow because technologically, I don't know how any of this stuff is done, they do. And they created this new workflow that, that's been relatively seamless. It's been a, just a little bit more uh, chaotic and cluttered than it would have been if we we're all in the same place but we've managed to get these episodes out. And I think that um, I'm proud to say that the last couple of episodes, we haven't lost an ounce of quality.
1: Uh, considering the, his his portrayal in the documentary, have you received any pushback or criticism from Jerry Krause's friends or family?
3: I haven't. I mean, I, I can't say that I'm in regular contact with them. Um, <laughs> it is, it, it's, it, that's not by design. I, 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 I do feel like Jerry gets a bad rap because Michael's going to be the hero anytime you tell a story about the Bulls. Right. And every hero needs a villain. And if it's going to be a foil for Michael Jordan, it's going to be someone in the front. It's not going to be Phil. It's not going to be Scotty or Dennis. It's going to be someone in the front office. And, and Jerry was the one pulling the strings. And Jerry was uh, very much uh, of the opinion that he deserved more credit than he got. But um, he had a right to have a beef with that. Jerry is the one who Michael was in place when he got there. But every other piece of those championship teams Jerry was the architect of that. And Jerry made some really gutsy decisions when he made trades that he knew Michael wouldn't like. He knew that uh, it was it was gutsy to even sign Dennis Rodman for that second three-peat run. The acquisitions that he made, the small pieces he put in place, uh, a guy like John Paxson, you wouldn't think is an important member of that team. And then he ends up hitting a shot that wins the 93 finals for them. He goes out and finds another John Paxson and Steve Kerr. Uh, who barely was even on the radar for the nba and steve wins a title for them with with the moment that he had in 97 jerry was the one who was the architect of all those things so it's disappointing to me to to hear people think that that uh jerry's getting killed in this thing because that's not certainly wasn't my intention uh if anything it was the opposite it was to demonstrate how much what these guys treated him like and, and and how he was the butt of some jokes and how difficult it must have been to navigate every day. Because this is a guy who desperately just wanted to be one of the guys. and He was never going to be that right. for mm-hmm. a whole host of reasons. He was never going to be one of the guys who was welcomed onto the bus with that team and, and seen as as one of the guys. So uh, I wanted to demonstrate to people how difficult it was for him to navigate just his daily existence on that team, but still to overcome that, make decisions he made. Um, to make them as great as they were.
0: So now that everyone is watching this film, especially in quarantine, I'm curious for you as a documentarian, you've been doing this for a while. When was the moment on set where you felt like, ah, you know what? I think Jordan trusts me here. I think he believes not only in the vision, but in me and my abilities.
3: It was um, his laughter at the cocaine circus quote. (laughs) That came 15 or 20 minutes into our first shoot with him. And we had met a few times before we actually rolled cameras and sat down the day in that house. But um, that would have been really easy for him to kind of bob and weave his way around that question and say, yeah, well, it's, it's, it was pretty crazy times back then, but I didn't do all of that stuff. I was just concentrating on basketball and that probably wouldn't have even made the documentary, the final cut, but uh, I've never heard that laugh come out of him before in all the interviews that I've seen with him and all the footage that we've watched, I've heard him laugh, of course, but I haven't heard that belly laugh. Uh, and that was a signal to me that that was an honest depiction, that description of that team was an honest depiction. So, uh, it's one thing for him to acknowledge that it's another thing for him to go a step further and offer an anecdote for what it was like from his perspective to come from Chapel Hill as a kid who had never seen any of that stuff before. Um, It was just a a really encouraging signal that this guy had come to play ball and and to give an honest account of his memories at that time. Mm.
1: Looking at the candor uh, and taking that with with Michael, with the rest of the subjects involved, uh, which players were the most forthright and on the flip side, which were the most guarded? And did you get any sense that Michael, Jerry, Reinsdorf or anyone for that matter, ran any sort of interference with anyone to steer anything in a particular way?
3: I didn't. I'm happy to say that I never got a palpable sense that anyone was guarded or didn't want to answer questions. You know, we, we showed up to interview Dennis Rodman and he said, you have 10 minutes. So that wasn't guarded. Wow. Just him not understanding the scope of this or, or what would be necessary, because I think a lot of people probably think, you know, I'm going to be in it for a total of 10 minutes. So you have 10 minutes with me. And of course, that's not how it works. But with editing and all that, you're whittling down uh, hours of footage with these people. But we were really lucky, man, that, that um, I don't know if it was the passage of time or just people's eagerness to, to talk about this um, years later. But I really felt like we got candid um, accounts from people. Jerry Reinsdorf on down. Jerry Reinsdorf is one of the most palpably intelligent people I've ever come across. So when he sat down there and, and he's unapologetic about the decisions that he made. Like Scotty's, Scotty's contract right. clearly was an unfair contract very soon into, into the duration of that contract. But Jerry's adamant that he told him not to sign that and warned him, do not come back to me and ask to sign this again, cause I'm not going to do it. He, I'm sure in some circles, especially in Chicago is getting killed for that. Cause he could have ripped up that contract and re-signed it, but he stands by it. And to this day, you know, 27 years later, whenever that 29 years later, He still says that was the deal. And Scotty knew that Scotty handled it his way. Michael never complained about his and he was underpaid his entire career. Michael Jordan made $4 million max per year until those final two years in which Mm. he made 30 and 33 million respectively, which is a gargantuan number. But Michael was making $4 million all through the nineties up until then. And this is a guy who was, you know, miles ahead of anybody else in the league in terms of his value to the organization. He signed a $4 million deal over, you know, 24 over six years, I think it was or something, but, and just agreed to do that. And never once came back and said, I deserve more.
0: You've been making films for a while. And the thing about sports documentaries is that they're not always this candid and this honest. So I'm curious, I don't know if you've done some reflection or looking back on your work, but I wonder, what do you think it is about you that makes people want to open up?
3: I think anyone, especially these guys who are elite athletes, I, I think that they respect hard work and they respect someone who has done their homework and, and has done the grunt work and clearly cares about the, uh, the material. And I think that if they feel like someone is there and, and they're responsible enough to have known these details, um, and if they get a sense that this person is going to tell the story in a responsible way... Um, it's not so much that they'll open up. It's, it's just that they're going to offer you the same respect that you offer them, and they're going to give you honest answer way that you're asking them honest questions. I, I try to spend time with anyone that I interviewed before. It's impossible here because we had 106 people, but some of the best performances we've gotten out of interview subjects in, in past documentaries have come from just spending time with them, having lunch with them right before the interview or giving them a chance to, to get to know you as a human being And to know that your heart's in the right place and that you are just eager to let them tell their story and that you're going to do right by them, uh, good or bad, whatever they say. You're going to depict that in an honest way and you're not going to take them out of context and you're not going to uh, they're going to be in a safe space when they talk to you and they can trust that you're going to reflect what they wanted to say accurately. So that's what we strive to do. Myself and my team take great pride in putting our interview subjects at ease and doing as much homework as possible so that they know that um, they're not gonna be our best friends. We're not there to get autographs. We're not there to, to take pictures. We're there to get accurate, honest, candid stories from these people and just treat them as human beings, not as superstars. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, considering uh, not best friends, I guess you'd say, a uh, couple people that aren't in it is thus far, at least one through eight is Juanita Jordan and his kids. Why is that? Why were they not included? And was there any attempt to um, include them?
3: Uh, His kids are in it. His kids are in uh, episode 10. Um, Oh, okay. And as far as Juanita goes, you know, they were adamant um, from the NBA to Michael's team on down, were adamant that this was not the definitive Michael Jordan story. I think that he bristles uh at the notion of doing a definitive documentary because this is a guy who does not want to be looked at as being in the past at all he doesn't he doesn't want to be a statue he doesn't want to be a retired number i don't even know if he particularly cares that he's in the hall of fame because in his mind he's still in his prime in a lot of ways intellectually and and spiritually emotionally he is every day that he wakes up so if we were doing the quintessential definitive story of michael jordan where he was born how he got to unc we, we would have spent a lot more time with his high school people we would have spent a lot more time obviously with people that he knew off the floor in the 90s but if you're going to do that for him then you're going to have to do that for uh right. scotty and and, and first we, we interviewed scotty's brother of course but uh, i really didn't want to make this about anything that wasn't within the purview of or the parameters of right. uh, dynasty and and telling the story of that dynasty and how everybody got there and how they built that dynasty the inner workers of how difficult it is to build that so uh you know Juanita didn't really make sense for us as as someone who could give an inside look into how they built that dynasty and how they say approached playing the Knicks and the Pacers and the Heat and the and the Jazz um his kids are in it because they were you know enormous fans and, and remain that to this day and and um I know uh, Marcus and Jeffrey outside of this. So we were mm-hmm. shooting at their house and they were there one day and we we, we interviewed them for a little bit and they, they appear for a moment in episode 10. But um, I'm happy to say that every single story we wanted to tell, we uh, were able to tell it and we were able to get the exact person that I wanted to tell the story. So we have 106 interviews and, and I'm proud of the fact that we we booked every one of them.
0: What is something about Jordan that you learned that you did not know with all of your research that you did going into this.
3: I think that I, just like everybody else who looks at this from, from a high level, sees Michael as someone who was just extraterrestrially gifted. And not that things came easy for him because he's known as being a hard worker and, and he expects the best out of himself and, and those around him. But what struck me about him and other stories, too, on that team is that these guys from a ground level, when you spend time with them and you go through the details of their story, these are these are underdog stories. Um, You know, Michael, everyone knows how he was cut as a a sophomore in high school. And that's something that's taught to kids today when they're cut and when people experience challenges in, in their youth. It's like, well, even Michael Jordan didn't make his varsity team. He also, they had to lie to even get him into camps to get him on a radar. He wasn't rated by Street & Smiths, which was the, the publication that, that, that ranked all high school kids at the time, as one of the top 600 recruits his senior year. He wasn't rated in the top 20 recruits in the state of North Carolina. He came from nowhere. Um, and it would have been very easy for him and, and for Dolores, his mom, who's, who's one of the most impressive people I've met in or outside of this project, the day that he was cut to say, you know what? They could have called the school and said and complained or they could have said, Michael, you know, he didn't want to play anymore. And his mother could have said, right, maybe basketball is not your thing. Maybe we just play baseball and and go for football. No, it was you work harder to get better at this. And that is how you're going to win. And that's how he looked at every challenge that he faced in his career uh, because of the upbringing that he had in the environment that he came from. Uh, And his brothers and sisters are the same way. So. I think that I just had a, a much better respect for how difficult it was year after year. Any coach will tell you that, that it's, it's harder to repeat than it is to win that first one. So to win three is unheard of or almost unheard of. And then to win six in eight years, you'll never see that again. Um, and they had obstacles and roadblocks along the way for every single time. So I, w- I was just enormously impressed with how difficult it was every single year. It never came easy. Anything that that's, that's that significant of an achievement. Mm-hmm. You can make it look easy all you want. You can jump from the foul line and dunk and say, well, he's God gifted and it just came easy. Nothing came easy for him. So that, that was the most enlightening aspect
0: to me. My last question before we leave, uh, what does he mean to you as an athlete, a man, a figure you admired going into this documentary?
3: Well, going into it, he was the most significant culture icon um, of my childhood. I, I, I was uh, seven years old when he was a rookie. And I had his posters on my wall and and my brothers and I would fight over who got to get what t-shirt on the youngest of three boys. And and we grew up in a sports environment. It was football, baseball, basketball year, year round for us. But he was plastered on my walls. I was a Boston sports fan. So It was all Boston people except for Michael. You know, growing up, some of my indelible memories of of sports fandom, be it with my family or my friends, were spent watching him and experiencing, you know, dunk contests when I was a kid, and watching the finals uh, in '98 when I was a senior in college. I vividly remember that. It was right after graduation with all my friends. So um, I saw him as a statue, and and you know, 25 years later to to actually get to know him as a human being, it was just an enormous privilege. And and they say. Don't meet your heroes is that classic. Uh, <laughs> and it's dangerous to do so. I've certainly had experiences with some guys that I idolized in the past um, who I've met. And it was disappointing experience. With Michael, it was quite the opposite. I was expecting someone who was very guarded and very aloof and insulated because of the level of fame and, and adulation. Uh, that he's achieved, but he was quite the opposite. He's a guy's guy, and he wants to come in and just kind of bust balls with the rest of us and sit there and smoke a cigar and laugh with everybody else. So it was a, a really, really pleasant experience with him, and, and one that I'll never forget.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot, Jason. Thank you, Jason Hare. Thank you so much. Congratulations on it all.
1: And there you have it, straight from the director's mouth. Director Jason Hare. We would like to thank him for sharing his time with us. It was a, uh, it was a real treat. Up next, we are going to give a call to author, professor, a gentleman who you've seen in the documentary throughout various episodes, and a really thought-provoking guy, Dr. Todd Boyd of USC. Let's give him a call.
0: Dr. Boyd.
2: Yes, how are you?
0: How are you? How How is your quarantine going?
2: I'll be glad when it's over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it may never end.
2: Uh, you're right. And that's the part of it. I'm trying to act like it doesn't exist.
0: <laughs> well, I think we can spend the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour pretending like it doesn't um, talking about this documentary. I know David is is curious and is going to start off with a question. And thanks again for doing this with us.
1: Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Dr. Boyd. First off, welcome. We're both kind of interested in Or how I guess uh, Jason approached you about uh, doing the documentary. I mean, you know, we see so many of these sports documentaries, especially and um, with the you know quote unquote talking heads. Can you give us a peek behind the curtain as to how you were approached and were there any agreements that you made, um, or was what was the discussion about what you you would talk about? How did that? How did it all come to be?
2: Well, um, I do a large number of uh, interviews for documentaries and. I've been doing this for a long time now. Um, and so uh, it's not unusual for people to reach out to me and uh, ask if uh, I would you know, consider uh, being emailed for a particular documentary. And um, that's exactly what happened here. I mean, they reached out and they said uh, they were doing a piece about Michael, uh, 10 episodes, um, et cetera, Last Dance, the story had actually already, you know, come out in the media that that this was was happening. And so I I knew the documentary was going to take place. I have had the uh, good fortune of now uh, being associated with documentaries in multiple genres, uh, sports, entertainment, music, film, fashion, etc. So, you know, I heard about the last dance. I read about it. And, uh, the next thing I know, they reached out, asked if I would, uh, agree to be interviewed. I think I was one of the first 10 people they interviewed. Mm-hmm. Usually people send me an invitation and if there's anything to discuss, we discuss it. And, uh, you know, we make arrangements to, uh, Uh, do an interview and uh, take it from there. So that's how it um, all materialized. This was two years ago. Uh, So, um, you know, there've been uh, updates uh, throughout. Uh, People were anticipating the uh, documentary. And uh, when uh, our present circumstances became quite real for us a few months ago, and everybody's at home, um, ESPN decided to move the uh, documentary up. It was originally supposed to be aired during the finals, which would be, you know, sometime next month Mm -hmm. had it happened that way. But of course, we're all sitting around and people need something to do. They decided to move it up and here we are.
1: Did you expect the call? I mean, when you had heard about it, was it something that you kind of had in the, you know, like, well, they're probably going to... Probably should expect the phone to ring pretty soon.
2: Well, you know, I I don't want to, (laughs) uh, I don't want to sound like, you know, I expected a call. I mean, you're glad when somebody reaches out and, you know, says that they want you to be in their documentary. Um, as I say, I have been doing documentaries for a long time. The first major documentary I did uh, 20 years ago for HBO was on Bill Russell. Um, Subsequently, uh, I would do four HBO documentaries, Bill Russell, the original OJ documentary, uh, documentary on the Georgetown Villanova, NCAA championship game in 85, and then a documentary on UNLV. Uh, These were all HBO documentaries, and this was before, um, at least three of them were, before uh, the 30 for 30 format existed. So, you know, from that, I've done uh, 30 for 30s on the Raiders and N.W.A. I've done the one on, uh, you know, USC, Texas football game, unfortunately, <laughs> um, Dennis Rodman uh, back in the fall and Michael Vick um, a few months ago. And, you know, when you talk about sports from a certain era, sports history, cultural history, uh, it looks like my name is on a list um, <laughs> The list. Uh, <laughs> Uh, People reach out. I mean, I was very glad that they decided to reach out to me for this because um, it's something I've talked about. I've written about, you know, something I witnessed firsthand. At a certain point, it's like um, people are, you know, voting on who's going to play in the All-Star game. And I guess uh, you have expectations, but at the same time, you have hope that you don't get left off. Um, (laughs) And so when you get that email or you get that call, it's honestly, it's always very flattering that somebody would want to, uh, you know, reach out and uh, have your presence in their work. And so, you know, I was very appreciative. Am I going to say on the air for everybody to hear that I expected it? No. Uh, But, you know, (laughs) I've been doing this for a while and uh, people know the name. And so, you know, certain topics come up, they kind of have Dr. Boyd attached to them. And you're grateful when people uh, follow through on that.
0: So you're saying if we weren't on the air, you may admit that you expected the call.
2: (laughs) I'm I'm trying to play, you know, (laughs) Mr. Humble here. Uh, I'm not a humble dude normally. Actually, I'm very humble, but my persona is uh, quite the opposite (laughs) of that. So I'm trying to be, you know, humble and say, oh, I was completely surprised uh, when they called and asked me if I would consider being in this documentary. Um, as I say, I've been doing it a long time, and particularly when it comes to, you know, sports piece like this. Number of people have said it for me on Twitter, so I guess I can quote them instead of being the one to say it. But um, people have started saying, like, your documentary is not legitimate if Dr. Boyd's not in it. And, uh, you know, I don't <laughs> agree with them.
0: <laughs> well, you know what? We're saying the same thing about this podcast. It was not legitimate until right. you said yes to coming yep.
2: on. Now you're initial. Uh (laughs) Why don't we
0: jump right in this? Because you said a line I liked. as someone who's a witness to these things, um, you can speak to it. So why don't we go back for a moment? On October 6th of 1993, Jordan announces his retirement. What do you remember about that day?
2: What I remember about that day is being shocked. That, to me, you know, came out of the blue. You know, there was no social media at the time. Uh, you know, something like that were to happen now, there might be hints and rumors and suggestions. There might be some sort of conversation. Back in 1993, there was no social media. It was more traditional media. Guy had won three titles. He was the best player in the league. That was clear. And you just figured, you know, this would go on until it reached a logical conclusion. But you didn't think that conclusion was going to be, I'm stepping away to go play baseball. So what I remember is um, I was early in my career at USC. That was um, that would have been my second year at USC. So, and I cannot remember what um, particular class I was doing at the time, but somehow I worked in Michael's retirement into whatever it was I was lecturing on. Whether it fit or not, I made it fit um, mm-hmm. because it was in my mind something you know monumental that the greatest athlete of a generation. What we would later learned to be one of the greatest athletes in American history, was walking away from um, this game that he was dominating while he was at his peak, so it was shocking. But then I started to think about one of my favorite historical figures, Sugar Ray Robinson. And uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, who, you know, is often referred to as pound for pound, the greatest boxer ever. A lot of people don't know, at the height of Sugar Ray Robinson's career, he stopped boxing to become a tap dancer at a time when, you know, tap dancing and singing was was very popular. And so there was precedent, but that was all unexpected back in 93 when he made that announcement. I was surprised.
1: So going back to episode five, when we get into the Harvey Gantt situation, as it were, you know, uh, President Obama makes a statement, I'll be honest, that when it was reported that Michaels had Republicans buy sneakers too, for somebody who was at the time preparing for a career in civil rights law and public life and knowing what Jesse Helm stood for, you would have liked to see Michael push harder for that. On the other hand, he was still trying to figure out how am I managing this image that has been created around me and how do I live up to it? And then Jordan says, I never thought of myself as an activist. I thought of myself as a basketball player. First off, what, what were your personal reactions at the time to the Harvey Gantt situation vis-a-vis Michael?
2: Well, um, you know, Michael was at this really prominent position, and um, he had reached this position not by being openly political, certainly not talking about racial issues. Um, He reached this position because he was an incredible basketball player. The culture surrounding him, the sneakers and everything, the other endorsements he he was doing at the time, you know, he was not Muhammad Ali who had refused to fight in Vietnam, and made himself a political symbol, while at the same time, you know, sacrificing his career and his livelihood. Michael was a different generation. Athletes didn't talk a lot about politics at that time. Mm -hmm. You have to remember the sort of success of O.J. Simpson prior to the mid-90s, when everything about O.J. Simpson, of course, would change in the public imagination. But if you think about O.J., who was the athlete back in the 70s, the black athlete back in the 70s, who really kind of set the table for what Michael was doing. And Michael took it to a whole nother level. But OJ is really the beginning of that. And Mm -hmm. unlike Ali, OJ was apolitical, never talked about racial issues, never talked about political issues. And so Michael was a different generation. He was more successful. He was more visible. And I never expected that he would speak on anything like this. But The circumstances were, when you looked at it, you know, there's a Black guy running to unseat Jesse Helms. There are no Black senators in Congress at the time. Jesse Helms has a terrible reputation in terms of racial issues, civil rights. He's such a strong supporter of South Africa and the apartheid regime back in the 1980s. You know, he's just not a savory, not a savory character. To, <laughs> to be put that. it kindly. Yeah, yeah, he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's a bad guy. Yeah. And I don't mean bad in a, you know, good way. <laughs> um, <laughs> so to me, you know, when you look at that, I mean, there's no black senators. I mean, what do we have, two now, uh, three, you know, if we, you know, look across the aisle, Yep. there's a hundred senators, three of them are black. I mean. In the early 1990s, there was zero. So we went from zero to three. That's not a lot of progress. Mm. But, you know, the opportunity to have a black senator from a southern state in a uh, Senate that had no black senators seemed like a worthy endeavor. But if, you know, you had different politics, maybe I guess you feel differently. But the other part of it to me, which is maybe not even that political, Jesse Helms is such a problematic, reprehensible figure that there's a way that you can speak out against him and not even be necessarily political. One thing to say, I'm not an activist, which I don't consider myself an activist either. I don't consider myself a politician. So I get that and I get the impulse that people sometimes impose upon an athlete, particularly somebody as visible as Michael, Mm -hmm. you know, and expecting them to be political. It's not an expectation, but at the same time, Would have been nice, I guess is a way you could say it, if he had used his visibility and popularity to speak out against a senator from his home state who was especially problematic in terms of uh, the issue of race. And that didn't happen. And then, you know, the comment circulates Republicans by Nikes, too. And um, I I mean, that's true. Um, What he's basically saying is I'm not going to jeopardize my money. I mean, I get it, you know, but not too long after that, of course, Charles Barkley did that famous Nike commercial when he said, I'm not a role model. Right. And I think that commercial really resonated because, and I've said this to Charles, I mean, that commercial was incredible because people were imposing these expectations upon visible, successful black athletes that they were not imposing upon visible, successful white athletes. And so honestly, Michael's, throw off comment at a certain point seemed less relevant than the commercial Charles was doing for Nike. And I I think the energy and focus shifted to what Charles represented as this sort of somewhat rebellious figure, certainly one who wasn't as controlled as Michael was. And I think a lot of people just gravitated in that direction, even though uh, Charles would get a lot of attention later for some of his political opinions at the time. He seemed like a more, I don't know what the term is, he seemed like a figure who was not edited and polished and packaged. Mm -hmm. He seemed more authentic, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
1: You touched upon this a little bit. Why do you think there was such a dearth, seemingly, of athlete activism in the 1980s and 1990s relative to, you know, basically the eras that preceded them and then the eras that we're currently in right now? I mean, you look at, you know, LeBron and you look at, a lot of the athletes um, currently today and Colin Kaepernick, obviously, and you seem to be getting a lot more activism, but by all means, correct me if I'm wrong, but there did seem to be a dearth in the 1980s and 1990s. Why do you think that was? Uh,
2: if you look at it, you know, Muhammad Ali is the patron saint of this issue, right. so to speak. And what happened, you know, Muhammad Ali said, I'm, I'm not gonna fight in this war, very unpopular war. There's a whole movement that developed in opposition to the war. Muhammad Ali was one of the first public figures to sort of speak out against it. And not only did he speak out against it, he said, I'm not going to participate in it. And what happened? He couldn't box anymore. His passport was taken. Um, His livelihood was taken. And ultimately, his case reached the Supreme Court. He was vindicated. Uh, I think the public's opinion about the war changed. Eventually, he got his chance to return. And the story is incredible. I mean, he eventually will regain his title. But it's not like he was embraced with open arms. I think a lot of people now who maybe don't know so much about that history because it was a while ago, you know, you look at the way Ali was treated um, during his funeral and you see like this heroic representation, but that wasn't the case in the 60s and 70s. So you look at Muhammad Ali, you look at a guy like Kurt Flood, um, you know, who was challenging this, you know, idea in baseball that Layers were owned by their teams, which would ultimately result in free agency that Kurt Flood himself didn't get the opportunity to benefit from. You look out and it's like, okay, if I speak out, my livelihood might be taken away from me. The stakes are too high. I mean, look at Kaepernick more recently. So I think what happened in the 80s and 90s, I mean, that's I've said to several people, I mean, you know, Michael and I are basically the same age. That's that's my generation. We're in college at the same time. There's no encouragement from anybody that you should be outspoken. Uh, the idea is get in where you fit in and try to, you know, make as much money as you possibly can. And that means sharing your opinions only with your close friends and family and not saying it in public. That's what you do. I mean, it's just honestly, I think the consciousness mm-hmm. of that time. And, of course, none of us were as successful as Michael, so maybe you don't have as much at stake. But then things change. Uh, Hip-hop music becomes more popular in the late 80s. A lot of conscious hip-hop. I mean, you know, Chuck D and Public Enemy. I mean, I was really pleased that Chuck D is one of the people who shouted me out uh, Sunday night, you know, as The Last Dance is playing. I mean, what they were doing uh, with their music, Ice Cube, other conscious rappers like Spike Lee, what he's doing in film, do the right thing, Malcolm X, things changed. You know, Michael would be one of the contributors to uh, the film Malcolm X. So by that time, Michael was saying, I'm not going to get into that situation and say, okay, yeah, it's maybe more strategic to go about it this way, but looking back at it historically, it looks different. Mm. And I think now when you look at... uh, LeBron, you look at Kaepernick, it's a different era. I mean, LeBron's been able to maintain his status and his popularity in spite of making some strong connections. Kaepernick, however, is not in the NFL. So when you take a position like this, you're really taking a chance. And if you're not prepared to deal with it, that's unfortunate. So you can understand the thinking behind it. But as I say, looking back at it historically, it looks maybe a bit different than it did at
0: the moment. In August of 1963, Martin Luther King gives his I Have a Dream speech. And on that same day, I don't know if you've seen this, but there is this roundtable in Hollywood where actors and writers, including uh, Harry Belafonte, Charlton Heston, Sidney Poitier, Joseph Mankiewicz, Marlon Brando, James Baldwin, they're filming this roundtable conversation on the meaning of civil rights. I bring that up because I've been rewatching um, that roundtable. I'm very
2: familiar with it. Charlton Heston, Charlton Heston changed his tune, but everybody else on that list is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Charl- Charlton Heston later changed his tune a little bit, but everybody else... Uh...
1: Yes, he did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I brought that up so that you can uh, drag Charlton Heston. Um, <laughs> um, no, but... Finally. I. I I don't think that's something many people have seen. I expected that you had. Um, I bring it up because over the last two weeks, this conversation around Jordan's activism has been resuscitated. And I keep trying to come at the question in all kinds of ways. Most of them are pretty boring. But then I think about it, and I'm I'm curious, because you have studied both uh, this history and lived some of this history in the documentary. Do you think it's unreasonable that uh, the people asking these questions or sort of reframing Jordan's activism or lack thereof, do you think it's reasonable that most people asking the questions are white people? And there is almost an expectation in these questions that, of course, since they are black people or, or people of color, playing a professional sport um, and have this power that their activism is just a given like as if they're supposed to do that. Like if they didn't do that, there's something wrong with them. And at the same time, you had plenty of athletes in the NBA, white athletes. They had seen their colleagues be treated unfairly. They had lived through that. They had power. They had autonomy and I guess I'm just wondering, do you think it's reasonable that we keep asking um, this rarefied group of people, black men having money at this time? It's, it's, it's not so common. I don't know. I just don't know how reasonable it is to keep asking them to forfeit their financial livelihoods because of the color of their skin.
2: Well, I think there's a, a few things um, embedded in what you just said. Um, first of all, you know, we were talking about Muhammad Ali, Kirk Flood, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jim Brown. Uh, you know, there's, of course, that famous meeting um, in Cleveland. Um, you talk about a round table. The round table in Cleveland, Jim Brown put together a very famous photo. Kareem, Jim Brown, uh, Bill Russell, Bobby Mitchell, Muhammad Ali, and they're all gathered to talk to Ali about his position on the war. And there's a very famous photo of this. I mean, think about that. Jim Brown, Bill Russell, Ali, and Kareem. You know, these are some of the greatest athletes ever, ever. (laughs) I mean, think about that. Just think about that for a second. These guys are all gathered in the same place. And then I gathered there to talk about sports. They're gathered there to talk about something very political, but at the same time, very uh, personal to Muhammad and personal to themselves. So the image we have of the black athlete is one that emerged in conjunction with political protest, the civil rights movement, the black power movement. That's the image we have of black athletes. I mean, even if you go back to Jackie Robinson breaking the color line, I mean, you know, there's Politics surrounding his entrance into Major League Baseball. He didn't get picked to play for the Dodgers because, you know, he was the best player who had the best skill set. He was picked to play for the Dodgers for a reason. Not only did he have the ability, but Branch Rickey made sure that he found a guy who was going to tolerate the racism that was going to be thrown at him without fighting back so vehemently. So the successful black athlete in this country, I could go back further, Jack Johnson, Um, at the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, the black athlete in America emerged under political circumstances. So, you know, Michael is not inventing the wheel. I mean, he's not the first successful black athlete. He's part of a lineage, he's part of a legacy. So, I think in one sense, there's expectation based on this history that a visible, prominent figure like Michael Jordan would maybe have some, you know, political position relative to race because that's been the history. But as we go forward, Michael Jordan is living in a very different world than the one Jack Johnson lived in or the one that Muhammad Ali lived in. And what he's able to do and not do is different than the people who came before him. And if we're gonna be honest about this, Michael Jordan has no training whatsoever when it comes to activism, politics, being a spokesperson on race being a political commentator, he that's not something he has any expertise in at all. His expertise is in the game of basketball. And from that, he's been able to endorse products and become this huge cultural icon. Nothing he has done has been based on anything political. So in some ways, you're asking someone to do something that they don't have any training to be able to do. Certainly not well. Mm. I mean, if I have a basketball and I step on a basketball court, I'm going to hit a lot of shots, but I I can't confuse that with being in the NBA. And I certainly can't confuse that with being Michael Jordan. And and I say this, you know, somewhat jokingly, but somewhat seriously. I've often uh, thought of myself as, uh, you know, a Jordan-like equivalent in terms of what I do. I've used him to Uh, motivate my own work to inspire my own work. You know, that's what you do. You find figures in history that appeal to your sensibility and you try to learn from them and use what you take from them in your own life. I say that to say, um, you know, I am as accomplished in my world as Michael was in his. And, um, you know, those are two different lanes. And so I'm not going to try to become Michael Jordan because that's a waste of everybody's time. He's got a lane. And he's in some ways saying at the time, I'm gonna stay in my lane. But people had expectations that he would do more. Um, I think the other part of that uh, uh, question, embedded in that question is this thing, when we talk about sports and race and politics, we never ask of white athletes these things. And that's to me, the real problem. I noticed earlier today, the situation down in Georgia, where this guy who was jogging was killed, you know, by this father and son duo. And there's a list of athletes, including Tom Brady, um, you know, who uh, Malcolm Jenkins uh, they have a letter, you know, they're asking the Justice Department Department of Justice to look into this. And I'm thinking, is that what you really want? <laughs> I mean, do you want William Barr looking into this, really? Yikes. Um. <laughs> Uh, Have you been paying attention to that part of the news or only this killing? Because if you had, you might uh, have second thoughts. But I guess my point is I saw Tom Brady's name and I'm like, well, that's good. He's lending his name to something that, you know, might resonate with some of his black teammates more than it would resonate with uh, his white teammates. But that's not normally the way this thing plays out. I don't know Brett Favre's position on politics. I don't know Brett Favre's position on Southern working class poverty because nobody would ask him that. I don't know Tom Brady's position on political issues. I know he played golf with Trump and and that got to be controversial, but there was never any question about his politics. And I think Brady has been very clear in saying, look, I played golf with the guy. We were friendly, but politically, I'm not getting involved with that. So if you're going to ask prominent white athletes, the same question, then so be it, but that doesn't happen. So you're putting these black athletes in a position where they are not only expected to perform at a high level in their sport, but then you're asking them to do something they're really not qualified to do other than lend their image to the issue in what is hopefully um, a helpful situation. It's great that LeBron is comfortable enough now To speak out on things when they uh, catch his attention and use social media to amplify this message. That's great. But at the same time, everybody's not LeBron. And you have to look at that for what it is. It's great that he's chosen to do this, but not everybody's going to have that same competence. And there's only so far you can take this.
1: And not to mention, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but. LeBron tweets out basically uh, very strong displeasure towards what happened with uh, Ahmaud Arbery. And then Jason Whitlock, a uh, reporter, comes and subtweets him and basically says, this isn't helpful and it's Twitter trolling. So it's—and then says it's, it's using this man's tragedy to build a brand as more outspoken than Michael Jordan, which makes it even more this whole— you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And then what is what is expected of these people? And then if they do speak out, you know, they're still
2: criticized or chastised. Well, I mean, Jason Whitlock has made a career of being the uh, mouthpiece for conservative white racial resentment. Without that, you've never heard of the guy. What he says is not intelligent or substantive. It's said to provoke a reaction Um, And it's often, if not always, some conservative, racially hostile position that's been articulated someplace else that he becomes the black face for, the black mouthpiece for. I would advise most people not to really waste any of their time paying attention to what Jason Whitlock says, because honestly, it's irrelevant. I mean, to take a tragedy like That situation in Georgia and LeBron deciding that he's going to lend his visibility and articulate his, you know, outrage to um, which he has every right to do. I mean, you know, LeBron is a human being. He's he's a basketball player as a black man. He looks at this and, you know, I mean, any of us could have been in that situation if you're a black male. I mean, trust me, I have more stories and we have time to tell you about situations where somebody thought, you know, I was someplace I was not supposed to be. Um, and, you know, fortunately nothing horrible happened, but it could have it's been a lot of close calls. Yeah. It was a black person, LeBron sees that and he wants to comment on it. And then another black guy comes along and says, no, 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 your comments are motivated by narcissism. Uh, uh, you don't really mean that, da 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 I mean, you know, the less we talk about Whitlock, the better. He, he's made a name for himself as the sort of Clarence Thomas of uh, sports commentary. And, you know, one wishes that maybe like Clarence Thomas, who, you know, maybe one good thing about him is he's usually very quiet. He doesn't talk very much on the court. <laughs> And we're all better off uh, because of this. I I think we'd all be better off if Whitlock didn't talk, but that's probably not realistic. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, if you take a position, you have clowns that are going to clap back. Um, And if you don't take it, somebody else is going to say you're not, you know, doing what you're supposed to do. So you can't really win either way, but you can't be so concerned about those reactions. You kind of have to do what you think is right.
0: You know, it's crazy because... Uh, people, for the last few years especially, have spent a lot of time thinking about what Jason Whitlock says, which doesn't make any sense to me, considering he has spent very little time thinking about what he says. (laughs) So I don't know why we keep doing this. It's just like a game that we're playing, but he's not even playing it with us.
2: Well, the thing is, you know, Jason Whitlock, I mean, and he's he's not even original. Uh, in doing this. We've always had Black people in our society who felt as though it was their job to play left tackle for white supremacy. There have always been Black people who, you know, felt as though this is what they were supposed to do in life. As I say, you know, I mean, people have a variety of positions, and they may be positions that disagree with my positions, and that's fine, but There's no substance to anything Whitlock says. You know, he's decided that because LeBron is so broadly popular that he can take shots at him. I remember a year or two ago when LeBron's houses in Brentwood, you know, somebody scrawled the word nigger on his property. And Whitlock's like, oh, this is no big deal. I'm paraphrasing, but he's sort of dismissive of it. I mean, like as a black person, I don't care how successful you are. You don't want to go home and see you know, somebody having desecrated their property with that word. I mean, and so for another Black person to come along and just say something dismissive or critical about that is not only irresponsible, I mean, it's just treacherous. And so there's no substance to what he says. There's never been any substance. He's not intelligent at all. People have said to me over the years, what do you think about this? I don't think anything of it. I mean, he's just not a serious person to me. But... You know, if you are black or white, but a lot of white people feel the same way. They just wouldn't say it because, you know, they don't want the backlash. Whitlock is saying, I'll handle that for you. I have your blind side. I got you. Don't worry about this. I'll take all the flack. That's what he's saying. Because the positions he articulates are positions that reflect these conservative white racial positions that come from certain sectors of society, that those individuals maybe don't want to say in public what they believe, but he's going to say it for them because he knows it's going to get a reaction, no matter how empty it is as a statement. So he's not someone that I think people should really waste their time listening to, but you know, that's the culture we live in. Clickbait culture, social media, the internet, hot takes, something like that gets him you know, 24 hours worth of attention. And I guess he's decided that's worth it.
1: So taking a hard right into the land of on the court, you have shown yourself in certainly this documentary to be to know your hoops. First and foremost, you are, for the record, a Pistons
2: fan. I I don't like that word fan. (laughs) Okay. Not as applied to myself.
0: If I had to like the Pistons, I wouldn't call myself a fan either.
2: (laughs) Okay, you're about to uh... (laughs) click changed me from this friendly person to... Uh,
0: <laughs> oh, please, let's just, you know, get you out there. You don't have to be humble anymore. Just, just jump in.
2: I started watching the NBA back in the early 70s. I'm from Detroit. My father had a really good friend who had season tickets to see the Pistons. And in the early 70s, the Pistons played in Cobo Arena, which is in downtown Detroit. The Pistons play in downtown Detroit now as of the last few years. Uh, they moved to Pontiac in the Silverdome, and then they moved to the Palace in Auburn Hills. So uh, from the late 70s up until, you know, two or three years ago, the Pistons wore Detroit on their jerseys, but they played in the suburbs. But when I started watching the Pistons, they played in downtown Detroit. And we lived in downtown Detroit. So a lot of times my father would get these tickets from his friend and I'd go with my father or my stepmother, and then there would be times, you know, there's 41 games, like people at a certain point uh, are like, okay, I can't go tonight. So on those rare occasions, I would get tickets and they would say, we're not going to take one of your friends. So, you know, imagine how popular I was. I had like piston tickets and I could go with my friends and walk down to Kobo. And I mean, I saw Kareem play for the Bucks, and I've been watching basketball a long time. I've seen every major NBA player from the early 70s forward. I represent Detroit, but I've lived in Los Angeles now longer than I've lived any place in my life. So it has been a lot of fun living in Los Angeles as a basketball guy, because when we talk about NBA finals, the Lakers and the Pistons have faced off in the finals three times. The Pistons won two of those three and were a phantom foul and Isaiah's turned ankle away from being 3-0. I wasn't here back in the late 80s um, and early 90s, but I was here in 2004. And I must tell you, that is the greatest moment in my sports life for two reasons. One, USC National Championship in the midst of an incredible run. Thirty-three straight wins. I mean, just an incredible time at USC and that Cardinal and goal. And then the Pistons just dismantled the Lakers in the finals. I've been, watching, <laughs> I've been rewatching that finals. The most enjoyable thing in my life because I got to enjoy that living in LA. Yeah. And I remember after the 04 finals were over, I was out of my mind. And I would go out and I would have on a Tigers baseball cap. I'd have on a Pistons throwback jersey and I would purposely wear Air Jordans. (laughs) And people would look at me and they would say, why are you wearing Air Jordans and you're representing all this Detroit gear? And I say, look closely, Detroit is on top, all right? Detroit is on top, Jordan is at the bottom. So I'm very (laughs) much invested in this um, from a personal standpoint, but of course at a certain time in my life, um, you know, I went to graduate school. I earned my doctorate. I began writing and lecturing and consulting and you know working on basketball in a more professional capacity, commenting in the media and documentaries and such. And so I come at it from two angles. There's the personal. There's the professional. A lot of times those things are interwoven. There was a moment I can share with you in shooting the documentary, which was very funny. Um, because we're talking and they're asking me questions about the bad boys. And at some point I say, you know, I'm wearing my Dr. Boyd hat. I can take that hat off. I'm going to put on my like Detroit hat. Right. And they're welcoming this. I'm like, are you ready for what you're about to experience? And they're like, yeah. And I just went off. Oh man, I just went off (laughs) and it felt so good. It felt so good. It was so much fun. A very, very small portion of that has made it into the documentary. Got it. A quote from uh, episode three about, you know, when you come to Detroit, you're going to get your ass whooped. Yes, of course. Probably 20 minutes of uh, commentary <laughs> like that, you know, that I was able to unleash, uh, and everybody got a big kick out of it, and it felt really good for me to be able to do that um, in that space.
1: Well, then, you know, episode three, we had on writer and fellow Pistons apologist, uh, Davey Rothbart. So, you know, we can give you this platform right now. Would you like I'm to not be- a,
2: I'm not an apologist. We just have to look at the history for what it is. <laughs> Nothing to apologize for.
1: Well, no, no, no. I was going to say the walk-off against after they lost to the Bulls. How do you feel about that?
2: Well, see, this is the part that gets left out. And, and, and I, I said this in the interview. It didn't make the cut. I've said this multiple times. If you've seen uh, the documentary Shut Up and Dribble that LeBron produced on Showtime mm-hmm. a couple years ago, I'm telling the same sort of story. I've been telling this story for a long time because I was there. I remember when oh, it happened. I remember when it happened. So here's the thing. When I say I was there, I was not at that game, but I'm saying I was there in the midst of all that. Right. It starts well before that game. Okay. So the Pistons and the Bulls played each other four times. Four years in a row in the playoffs, 88, 89, 90, 91. The Pistons beat them three out of four. The Bulls won the last time. In between game three and four of that 91 series, Jordan does an interview. And in the interview, he talks about how the Pistons had no class. When Boston was representing the Eastern Conference, they did it with class. Uh, we're glad to dethrone this classless team. He went too far. Right. It's like, Okay. You've taken three ass whoopings. The team's old, and you know. Finally, after you and Phil and everybody else whined to the league, they started tweaking the rules to accommodate you. You finally win. Okay, take that victory and you know go do your thing. But no, 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 no. In between three and four, you're gonna start talking. And I remember reading his comments in the paper that day. And I was not in a good space. When I tell you I've been watching NBA since the early 70s, and this is the truth, there's only one NBA Finals that I've missed. And that was on purpose, and that was the 91 Finals. I refused to watch. I I could not watch. (laughs) I could not watch because America was anointing this guy. And my guys were getting disrespected, and I just, I was not in a good headspace. Have you gone back since? Um, I don't need to see it. I mean, (laughs) an old Laker team, whatever. It's not not important to me. If I'm on the Pistons, I'm walking off that floor with Isaiah, you know, and Lambeer. I'm right there with them. And to this day, I'm still right there with them. That's what's been so cool about this documentary is I'm watching this and I'm still mad. And it's been 30 (laughs) years. I'm still mad. And I didn't play one second. (laughs) Um, I, I guess, you know, to kind of sum this up in terms of that particular issue, if you look at Jordan and how he conducted himself in that moment, he disrespected the Pistons. And so I feel like if you add that in, it looks different. The other thing is, of course, this has come up a few times now. You know, Larry Bird walked off the floor against the Pistons when they beat Boston in 88. Nobody said anything about that. I just feel like it's just another way for people to sort of dig at the Pistons. Um, But it's not really that big a deal. People tried to make a big deal out of it, but it's not really that big a deal. I mean, I did not show you respect, and you're not responsible for showing him respect. Jordan was very disrespectful in the way he talked about the Pistons, and Lamb and Isaiah walked off as a response to that. That's how I see it.
1: Episode 8, you're interviewed about the uh, Nick Anderson steal. And, you know, talking— getting, of course, I don't want to say revising history and what have you, but watching that and then listening to Jordan's interviews it reminded me a lot full disclosure i'm a diehard cleveland cavaliers fan
2: um are you from cleveland
1: i was born in youngstown ohio but then we moved to iowa city and that's when i became a sports fan which i believe you also attended as matriculated to as well
2: University of Iowa, back in black and gold
1: yes that's what i'm talking about i was there for like the bj armstrong roy marble years
2: oh man we must have been there at the same time there you go that was my guy man bj i think May have been there the first year I was there. Great time. Late 80s, early 90s.
1: Incredible. So I became a Cavaliers fan, and, you know, I'm thinking about 2016 and the way that it was discussed, basically, oh, well, you know, Steph was injured. And they're kind of alluding to that same thing in 95, and I understand he was playing baseball and what have you. There's a little bit of revisionist history, I feel like, in terms of, like, giving Michael excuses for 95, at least, and I guess I also wonder: Do you think Michael had he you know not taken the baseball sabbatical? Do you think they would have beaten the Rockets in '94, or do you think they would have gotten through the East in '95 and/or beat the Rockets in '95?
2: I mean, you know, that's the eternal question, right? The only way we can answer that question is on a video game. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> you know that's the the brilliance of uh, NBA Two K, whatever. Um, Uh, You could play Jordan's Bulls against, you know, the Dream's Rockets. Mm -hmm. The teams that they beat, I mean, again, if I'm being honest about uh, (laughs) being a a, a Piston guy, Mm -hmm. um, I looked at the fact that the teams he beat in the finals, they had great players. But were any of those great teams? I mean, really? I mean, the Lakers were old. Injured. I mean, the Pistons had done away with Portland in 1990. They got back in 92, and Mike hit him with all those threes in that first game and shrugged. Right. It was sort of the end of them. You know, Charles is my guy. I love Charles. It's like Marley and... Right, Kevin Johnson. Kevin Johnson, Richard Dumas. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, they had good players. Charles, incredible season. I'm watching those series every year except for 91. Like I told you, I didn't watch. Um, 92, 93. And every time I'm watching, and, and this happened, unconsciously, it's just sort of overcoming me as I'm watching those. I'm like, why can't anybody stop this guy? I wanna see somebody beat him. And they couldn't do it. So you gotta tip your hat, like they couldn't beat him. He was beatable and they couldn't beat him. He retires. Now it's weird because when the finals roll around you look and you're like, Houston, man, these guys are good. Like, this is a good team. I mean, you know, one of my longtime friends, Vernon Maxwell is the two guard on that team. Um, I know Vernon from when I was an undergrad at Florida. Spent a lot of time with him.
1: Mad Max, huh? what was he like in college?
2: You know, it's funny. I, I love Vernon. That's my guy. Uh, my really good friend was a point guard on the same team. Vernon was on. a guy by the name of Andrew Moulton. Drew and I met Vernon when Vernon was still in high school um, because he went to high school there in Gainesville. And uh, so he's a guy I've known for a long time. I uh, ran into him at the All-Star game one year, and he we hadn't seen each other. And He told the person he was with, this is my man. And he's a philosopher. If you had known him, you know, back in the day, you'd never believe it. He's exactly right. So Vernon and those guys had gotten to the finals and, you know, the dream, man, the dream. So underrated. That guy's footwork is just like incredible. Oh, man. Yeah. Unstoppable. I mean, just and then you look at who else is on that team, Sam, I am Sam Cassell. He's coming off the bench, you know, yeah. Robert Ory. I mean, that, that was a really, really good team. And Jordan had not played a team with a dominant big man. At that time, the big man was where it was at. You know, that's where it all stemmed from at the time was the big man. That was the NBA. The Bulls didn't have a great big man. Other teams did. So it would have been interesting to see him beat or try to beat a team with an incredible big man, a big man who was actually picked two picks before he was, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, so we keep hearing all these stories about how he's motivated. Um, You know, it's like watching Cam Newton and Von Miller in the Super Bowl the other year, number one and number two. Von Miller came out on top and he talked about that. It would have been interesting to see the personal battle it would have been interesting to see the team's battle. I'm going to be honest with you. I think Houston might have gotten him. I think Houston might have beat him. I do too. Because there was no way whatsoever. Jordan, as great as he was, could not guard a king. Right. Pippin could not guard a king, right? They didn't have Dennis yet. Nope. Um, so, I mean, in Vernon, I remember seeing Vernon and um, I saw Vernon in Salt Lake City. Uh, early 90s before I went to USC, I spent one year at Utah. Ran into Vernon, he's playing for Houston, and we were up in his room and other guys on the Rockets were there and we were talking and I'm asking him what it's like to play against this guy and that guy. And we get to Jordan. And I mean I've known Vernon for a very, very long time. And Jordan's name came up and you know it's just like you're talking about any other player. There was no reverence or awe. It's like, no, like that's I'm ready to take him on and 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 do my thing. Like there was no fear. Yep. That would have been an incredible finals. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see it.
0: So, since we're in the uh, theoretical where the Bulls had to play Houston, thankfully that didn't have to happen um, for my sake.
2: Would have been fun to watch. You're a Bulls guy?
0: I'm from Chicago. Which Go ahead and drink. I end up saying that every podcast, which David has really taken a liking and making fun of me for saying it every podcast, but you know what? It bears repeating every episode. Question for you. If Gary Payton... Covers Jordan the entire series. What do you think happened?
2: The same thing that
0: happened. <laughs> uh, exactly. The
2: Bulls still win the series. I mean, there's such a size disadvantage. You know, Gary Payton was a great defensive player. There's no doubt about that. I mean, size-wise, like you know, you look at the '04 finals. Gary Payton was a lot older, but I mean, Chauncey ate Gary Payton alive in '04. Again, he was older but
0: (laughs) he was half asleep by that point though. Uh, He he
2: was older. I will say that just remember that series and Chauncey just kept shooting over him. I mean, size wise, I don't think Peyton could have guarded Jordan any better than done in that series. Maybe on a, a smaller player, he could have a different impact, but just if nothing else, just size. And Jordan, of course, had a whole lot more than size.
0: As we get to the end of this, both this conversation and the documentary, I think, Um, something we keep coming back to on the show and something everyone is thinking about at home is what Jordan's legacy means to them. So I'm curious, what does it mean to you at this point in your life?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's been interesting to be able to relive a lot of this, you know, have conversations that I've had repeatedly um, for the last 30, 40 years. First time I noticed, uh, Mike Jordan, he was wearing a Tar Heels uniform. You know, he's a freshman in college. Uh, I remember when I got to Florida, this is the era when Michael's on that team in Carolina, but Worthy's the guy. And Perkins is on that team, Sam Perkins. James Worthy's the guy everybody's really talking about. I mean, Michael's a young, promising freshman. But this is the era of Ralph Sampson and Patrick Ewing and Keem Abdul-Olajuwon, as he was called back then, Keith Lee. This was basketball centered around the big man. ACC would play on ESPN, I think it was on Wednesday night. I'm in college, living in a dorm. My friends and I, we love basketball, so we watch basketball as much as possible. But at this time in the 80s, you had this real popular show called Dynasty on the air. And on Wednesday night, these women would commandeer the TV room so that they could watch Dynasty. And they, they were slick. They didn't wait for the show to come on. They got there hours early with pillows and snacks. And So if you wanted to watch basketball, you had to find some place else to watch it. I remember my friends and I walking all over the University of Florida campus, trying to find a spare TV so we could see Jordan and the Tar Heels play Wake Forest or whoever they were playing, NC State. Duke was not so good back then. So when you say legacy, what does it mean? What I'm saying to you is my association with Michael started when we were both in college. That was clearly a long time ago. I mean, that's my life from college through adulthood, professional life. Then you talk about what I end up doing. You know, I'm writing books about basketball, commenting on basketball in documentaries, I'm writing articles about basketball. I mean, you know, speaking to Players Association Just for me personally, some of my really good friends are NBA guys, college guys, coaches. Um, I mean, basketball has just been part of my life for a very long time. And I look back, some of the old memories come back, some of the old feelings come back. I've had the chance to enjoy this personally and professionally. I saw Michael score 59 points on Easter Sunday in Detroit in 1988 with my own eyes. I've met him a few times. I think what people take away from this are their own sort of personal recollections, and those recollections are going to be different depending on who it is. I can say I've had the opportunity to, in one way or the other, comment on one of the greatest cultural figures in American history. In so doing, look at the pros and the cons, the good and the bad. And I mean, he's a human being at the end of the day, and we have to regard him as such. He's not perfect. There are flaws, there are controversies, but it's a significant part of my personal history. It's a significant part of American history. And I'm fortunate to have been able to witness it and be able to share my observations with the public. And for this, I'm 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 very grateful, appreciative that I would be able to be involved in something like this now. But as I'm saying to you, there's a long history even before we get to this point. So this is as much personally about my own life as it is about Michael. He's just the figure we're sort of using to reflect on all this.
1: Well said. Well, he's a professor author an absolute necessity if you want your documentary or podcast to be legit uh he is dr todd boyd thank you so much for coming on
0: thank you sir thanks for having me good luck with the rest of your quarantine thank you same so long and there it is thank you so much for listening to the last dance after show we'd like to thank our guests this week director jason Hare and dr todd boyd We'd also like to thank our wonderful editors, Melissa Zhuang and Meg Chen Sun. Without them, this show would not be possible. And if you like this show, you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening.
1: Also, guys, we are still trying to raise money for the good people over at Feeding America. Feeding America works to get nourishing food from farmers, manufacturers, and retailers to people in need. At the same time, they are also seeking to help the people they serve to build a path to a brighter food secure future and they're doing especially great work amid the covid19 crisis so if you can we'd absolutely appreciate it if you made a donation to what they're doing you can learn more about their cause at www.feedingamerica.org
0: up next we have director steve james uh he made a film called hoop dreams you've probably seen it if you haven't i don't i mean if you really haven't please
1: essential viewing
0: you're in quarantine
1: take a long look in the mirror and ask yourself why
0: ask why maybe pop it in it's three and a half hours that you will not regret it's uh, regardless of sport movies it's one of the best films ever made mm-hmm. so we're happy to talk to steve we also have on documentarians and old friends of mine bill and turner ross it's gonna be a fun documentary round table on the b side which will come out thursday morning Again, if you have not listened to our wonderful back catalog, it includes conversations with folks like Wesley Morris, Bob Ryan, Sam Smith, Adam McKay, Brian Moses, Davey Rothbart, Carl Tart, and Daniel Van Kirk. I'm Sam Fricoso. Thank you for listening to The Last Dance After Show. David, final words?
1: Yes, my name is David Villar. Be safe out there, guys. Wash your hands thoroughly, and we will see you soon.
0: So long.